Well, it has uh, been a little while since uh, we have been looking at church history. Um, I've been away, and in fact, uh, would appreciate your prayers for uh, my friends uh, down in New Zealand. Uh, we were just commenting that uh, if it had happened, uh, there, there was a 7.5 uh, earthquake north of Christchurch this morning. It was uh, just after midnight uh, their time, and um, that's uh, that's not a good thing. Um, Christchurch had been devastated by a an earthquake in what was that 2006, 2005? It, it seems like a long time ago, but everyone tells me that they're still rebuilding, uh, which is which is amazing. Um, and so 7.5, uh, it wasn't actually in Christchurch, it was a little ways away, so I'm hoping that maybe there wasn't quite as much devastation uh, as, as before, but don't know. Anyway, um, Wellington, which is where I was, uh, was uh, affected, and in fact there's a tsunami warning, and uh, since I was... Uh, in a hotel within probably not even not, not a full kilometer uh, from the waterfront because I ran along the waterfront down there um, they were saying that I, I, I would assume that I would have been uh, staying out in the street and then evacuated somewhere uh, the Wellington Airport is right on the beach and uh, so I don't even know if that's even open. And we, we flew back on Monday. So let's just say uh, I'm praying for my friends there, but not really sure that I want to be there with them right now uh, myself, uh, given that I would be a long ways, a long ways from home uh, at that particular point in time. So uh, that would be a little bit difficult. So uh, pray for them and uh, pray that uh, there weren't any lives lost or anything like that in that particular uh, situation. I'm looking up a citation, one of my books uh, that I wanted to read to you. Um, last time we were together, my recollection is that we had made it to a gentleman by the name of Melito of Sardis. Uh, I'm getting a nod of the head uh, from someone on that one. And I had mentioned that he was involved in a controversy that uh, you've probably, most, pe most people have never heard of this particular controversy. It is called the Quarta Deciman Controversy. So just put Quart O Deciman if you want to write that down. Um, uh, Kelly tells me that she Googles all the phrases that I uh, come up with that she's not heard of before, and uh, that, that sometimes can be rather interesting. But uh, the Quartadeciman controversy, uh, you know, we might think from our perspective today that some of the controversies of the early church were almost incomprehensible. But one of the things you have to remember is there was a, well, let, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, if you've ever spoken to uh, one of Jehovah's Witnesses for a lengthy period of time, 
One of, th one of the things that holds witnesses uh, in the Watchtower Society, even when they've been sort of abused and, and uh, it can be a rather abusive religion and things like that, is in their mind the unity that exists, the sameness that exists throughout the entire organization around the world. And from their perspective, that is a sign of divine authority and approbation. In their mind, when they're sitting there, uh, and, and I imagine there's probably almost no one in here who's ever, how many of you ever attended a, a, a service at a watchtower? Kingdom Hall. Oh, a couple of people. All right. Um, they're not the most thrilling experiences. You, you know, you don't, you don't walk out just going, wow. Um, and if you do a watchtower study, you know, they, uh, they'll ask a question. There's these questions at the bottom of the page, and they'll put this microphone down the row for you to answer the question. And the questions are you know, pretty straightforward. The answer is pretty obvious, stuff like that. Um, but what you need to remember is that very article and those very questions are being studied in every single kingdom hall around the world on that day. Lockstep unity. And for many people's thinking, that's, that's a sign that God is with us. Well, in the early church, remember, we already talked about the scandal of the early schisms. The, the scandal that you would have in North Africa, Catholic churches and Donatist churches. And they're separated from one another, and there's no fellowship between them. And now it's interesting, once the Muslims came through, the Muslims couldn't care less whether you were of one, one brand or the other. Uh, uh, that didn't, didn't make any difference, and that, that tended to uh, somewhat change the dynamic of things uh, for, for everybody. But uh, the point being that uh, the early church had the idea that the unity that we have, and how far that unity extend, that's always been the issue. Because, you know, I, like I just said, I, I just got back from the other side of the world, and I had wonderful unity with the brothers and sisters down there. But what was it based on? Um, it was not based upon, well, you know what? We sang Come Thou Fount in New Zealand. From what I heard, a little bit better uh, than <laughs> had been sung here around the same time, but... Um, but, however, however, uh, they had, now don't tell anybody, they had drums and, and a guitar and a keyboard. And they, it was pretty much the same tune, but it was modified a little bit, you know? So, did we really have unity? Well, I would say, yes. But there would be others who would say, no, never. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, so what are, the, what, are the, what are the limits of unity? What, what is unity and what isn't unity? To, to me, 
if we're both singing the same song with the same desire to the same Lord, that's unity for other people as well. If, they, if it's not, if you don't do it, uh, you know, well, well, other people would say, that's a hymn, can't do that, so don't have unity with you. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of ways we've found of sort of dividing from one another. Um, but it's, it's the definition of what we need to have unity on and what we can have difference in that has always been one of the biggest controversies. And so the quartadeciman controversy to us seems odd because all it was was when do you celebrate the resurrection? Now, I don't remember anything in the New Testament about having to celebrate the resurrection on a particular day of the year. Uh, it seems to me that the, what's called the Kodiake Hemera, the day of the Lord, uh, was a weekly celebration of the resurrection. And that was what we call the Lord's Day. And, um, but the idea of the annual celebration is very, very early, what we would call Easter or Resurrection Sunday. But how do you figure that out? Well, the Eastern churches claimed that John, the apostle, specifically delivered to them apostolic tradition. They didn't use that term. Well, yes, they would eventually. But that John taught the Eastern churches specifically uh, that they were to celebrate the resurrection on what we would call Nisan 14, which is the Jewish calendar 14th day of the month of Nisan, which is Passover. Ironically, interestingly enough, that's when uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have what's called their Memorial Supper, um, which we don't have time to get into today, but which in and of itself is a fascinating thing. Um, the Western churches used a different form of calculation to determine um, the Sunday upon which Easter would be celebrated. You may notice it bops around between March and April um, and moves back and forth depending on, on the particular year. Well, this would create a tremendous um, division amongst uh, the churches. Um, for example, Irenaeus, who we're going about to get to, one of the biggest names near the church, Irenaeus, um, rebuked Victor. Victor was the bishop of Rome over this very issue because Victor became so uh, dominating that he threatened the Eastern churches with excommunication if they did not bow to the Western method of determining the day of the celebration of Easter. Irenaeus said, cool your jets, dude. That's not a quote, by the way. Um, that's sort of a modern living Bible version uh, of uh, what he would have said uh, in Latin, probably, or something like that. But uh, culatus thinus jetus or something like that. But um, uh, he basically told the Bishop of Rome, you, you don't have the right to divide the, the church, uh, this type of thing. But it is, it is an early indication of the Bishop of Rome sort of... Uh, feeling like he's got something special going. But uh, Irenaeus said, no way, don't do it. But it, it shows the depth of the division, and it's something to put in your notes. Hmm, east-west, east-west. 
because eventually it's going to take until the year 1054. That's one of those you need to memorize this date to pass the final uh, dates. Uh, 1054 is the date of the schism, the, the great schism between East and West. And that didn't happen starting in 1053. Um, there were cracks, there were fissures. There really is a different way of thought in the East and the West. And it's going to be seen all the way back uh, to, I think, this early time period. And it just grows over time. So Melito Sardis was on the, uh, the wrong side, basically. Um, of this particular issue, and hence in the West especially, uh, his writings were pretty much ignored for a lengthy period of time and have only uh, recently uh, been appreciated once again. Um, it's interesting that uh, Polycarp and Anacletus, Bishop of Rome, had discussed the issue years earlier, and, but in a much more collegiate way uh, than would happen later on. Um, so, it is probably due to his involvement, as I said, with the Corridesimum controversy. We sort of forget about things like that. It's a shame because he is a wonderful early witness to the strong belief in the full deity of Jesus Christ in the early period. And that's why I ran to the other room, wanted to read a couple sections uh, for you. Um, he wrote a commentary, interestingly enough, <laughs> on the apocalypse, on Revelation. Now, why is that interesting? Well because the book of Revelation struggled for inclusion in the New Testament canon. And there were many people who rejected it. He was certainly one who did not. Um, and uh, he wrote a, a commentary on that book. Uh, the loss of this and his books on the church and on the Lord's Day are perhaps to be regretted most. So he wrote books on the church. That would have been interesting to see what a, uh, I mean, Sardis, major city, a lot of apostolic content there. Would have been interesting to see what he wrote on the church before the end of the second century. On the Lord's Day, that would have been really interesting to have. How do we know he wrote these things? Because other people mention them, but we don't have them. We don't possess them any longer. Um, still could discover an ancient manuscript someday. You never know. Among the Syriac fragments of Melito published by Curitan, is one from a work on faith, which contains a remarkable Christological creed, an eloquent expansion of the regula fide, the, the, the rule of faith. The Lord Jesus Christ acknowledged as the perfect reason, the word of God, who was begotten before the light, who was creator with the Father, who was the fashioner of man, who was all things and all, patriarch among the patriarchs, law in the law, chief priest among the priests, king among kings, prophet among the prophets, archangel among the angels. He piloted Noah, conducted Abraham, was bound with Isaac, exiled with Jacob, was captain with Moses. He foretold his own sufferings in David and the prophets. He was incarnate in the virgin, worshipped by the magi. He healed the lame, gave sight to the blind, was rejected by the people, condemned by Pilate, hanged upon the tree, buried in the earth, rose from the dead, and appeared to the apostles, ascended to heaven. He is the rest of the departed, the recoverer of the lost, the light of the blind, the refuge of the afflicted, the bridegroom of the church, the charioteer of the cherubim, the captain of angels, God who is of God, the son of the father, the king forever and ever. Yeah, that's one long sentence, too. <laughs> um, and similarly to that, right here, or this is Shaft's History of the Church, Volume 2. There's two sets in the pastor's office, and I'm sure that if someone 
ask kindly, as long as you bring them back by Sunday so I can steal them. Um, I included, it's so cool, I included a, um, I had forgotten, I, I thought we were on Irenaeus this morning, and then I started laying and went, oh. And so, uh, one of the things I wanted to read to you was a quotation from Alito that's in my book on the Trinity. And so, I went, I think I probably own my own book on the Trinity on Kindle. And uh, so when you have one of these devices that uh, Pastor Fry doesn't understand, I uh, quickly grabbed it, downloaded it, and uh, happened to guess pretty carefully as to where it was in the book. And uh, voila, here it is. Uh, this is a quotation from Melito's book on the Passover, or his sermon on the Passover, I should say. And... Um, uh, this is my translation of it. Here's, here's what Melito said. And so he was lifted up upon a tree, and an inscription was attached indicating who was being killed. Who was it? It is a grievous thing to tell, but a most fearful thing to refrain from telling. But listen as you tremble, tremble before him on whose account the earth trembled. He who hung the earth in place is hanged. He who fixed the heavens in place is fixed in place. He who made all things fast is made fast on a tree. The sovereign is insulted. God is murdered. The king of Israel is destroyed by an Israelite hand. This is the one who made the heavens and the earth and formed mankind in the beginning. The one proclaimed by the law and the prophets. The one enfleshed in a virgin. The one hanged on a tree. The one buried in the earth. The one raised from the dead. The one who went up into the heights of heaven. The one sitting at the right hand of the Father. The one having all authority to judge and save. Through whom the, earth, through whom the Father made the things which exist from the beginning of time. This one is the Alpha and the Omega. This one is the beginning and the end, the beginning indescribable and the end incomprehensible. This one is the Christ. This one is the King. This one is Jesus. This one is the leader. This one is the Lord. This one is the one who rose from the dead. This one is the one sitting on the right hand of the Father. He bears the Father and is born by the Father. To him be the glory and the power forever. Amen. So again, when you hear people saying, well, you know, as... Some Jehovah's Witnesses said to me years and years ago when they accidentally wandered into the offices of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Um, I don't think to this day they knew where they were, but, um, well, you know, all this Trinity stuff wasn't invented until the 12th century. Well, most of them won't say that. That was way down the road. But, uh, well, it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea. Well, nope, that's not the case either. Um, here you have another, you know, we read all that stuff from Ignatius. Uh, Melito is, is after Ignatius, but certainly continues in the exact same line of Ignatius in regards to his clear belief in, uh, in the deity of Christ. So there's, there's one that honest, Melito honestly was sort of a little bit forgotten to history, and his contributions uh, minimized. Um, sure would be nice if some of those books would turn up, you know, buried in a in a library somewhere, and, and that's, a, that's a distinct possibility. It could happen. Uh, there's lots of stuff sitting in archives in places that hasn't been identified, translated, things like that. As we're going to see when we look at origin, vast majority of works yet to be translated into English. Um, so who knows? Might, might, it might be very helpful, very useful, uh, but very early and very clearly Trinitarian. And I might just... I'll just mention this just briefly in passing. 
eventually we're going to have to spend a fair amount of time talking about the canon of Scripture. And what was accepted, what was not. And of course, there's two aspects to that. That is, the, the primary area of controversy isn't about the New Testament. And when you think about any possible books that have come down to us from history that anyone ever thought should have been part of the New Testament, we know all of them. We, ha we possess all of them. And it's, it's a really open and shut case uh, that any other possible works. I mean, Clement of Rome was considered by some, uh, Shepherd of Hermas, things like that. They're open and shut cases that they were never universally accepted and there's a clear and obvious um, difference between these books and what we have in the New Testament. The controversy, especially between uh, Protestants and Roman Catholics, of course, has to do with the Old Testament, not the New Testament. The books that we call Apocrypha, uh, which they call deuterocanonical, secondarily canonical. I'm not sure how that even is a meaningful word, but that's where the controversy lies. And Melito of Sardis, that name will come up again because we won't do it right now, but you will be able to discern a very clear line of, let's put it this way, the more knowledgeable a writer was of the history of the Jewish people and the history of the Old Testament, the less likely they were to accept the apocryphal books of Scripture. The more ignorant they were, the more likely they were to accept the apocryphal books of Scripture. And it's the ignorant position that ends up being canonized at the Council of Trent in 1548, um, and um, the more knowledgeable line being rejected at that particular point in time. Melito inquires into Palestine over this issue. He does research. Uh, he inquires of the people in Palestine who would have access to Jewish understanding, the history of the Jewish people, and you know, maybe he looked at Romans 3, hmm, to whom the oracles of, the, of God have been entrusted. Maybe we should ask them. And uh, discovered that Jewish people never accepted the apocryphal books as being scripture. And so he rejected them as well. And he, so he will be one of many uh, that will be in that line uh, that do not accept the apocryphal books as, as being scriptural. So keep in mind there as well. All right. Switching gears now, uh, and we probably, I'm not sure that we will get through all of this because he's a, he's a pretty major figure. And one of the reasons he's a major figure is because so much of his writings have not only come down to us, but they've been known to us all along. So in other words, uh, even though Melito, some of Melito's writings have sort of been rediscovered, there hasn't been all that much work done on them. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, um, different story. His writings have been known, he was quoted extensively, and major works of his have come down to us, and so it's rather, he has a, a rather important standing. He was born near Smyrna between 115 and 125, so um, obviously uh, early second century uh, writer. He was a student of Polycarp, so, what would that make him? Uh, third generation? I mean, if, if uh, 
apostles to you know, John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. Okay, so sort of only two steps there. Keep that in mind because Irenaeus is going to be one of the first people to utilize the phrase apostolic tradition. Apostolic tradition, which is going to become a key term for us here in the early period. And if he could mess something up along those lines, it really makes you wonder just how safe the concept of apostolic tradition, quote unquote, is, depending on what you're calling it. We'll talk a lot more about that in the future. He was a missionary to southern Gaul and was a presbyter in Lyon during the great persecution of 177. The bishop, Pothinus, died in the persecution and Irenaeus took the position. He was very involved in the Montanist disputes. Remember, uh, did we, we haven't talked about it. Yes, we did. No, we didn't. A little bit. Just a little bit? Thank you. Uh, the Montanist disputes, uh, we haven't gotten to... Uh, oh, we did. Yeah, we did talk about... When we talked about Tertullian. Okay, we, we've done Tertullian. Okay, we, we did the Montanist stuff. Okay, good. Uh, so you know what the Montanist disputes were. So he was involved with uh, that. And he took a less than hard line, always emphasizing love, even in the midst of dispute. Uh, he worked with zeal in Lyon. We lose sight of him after 190 and are not sure of the date of his death. So... 177, he basically becomes the leader of the church in Lyon. There is persecution in that area for quite some time. Uh, most believe that he died a martyr's death under one form of that persecution or, or another. Um, Irenaeus' theology was more aware of the New Testament than some earlier fathers, though still primarily legalistic in character. Uh, he was a millennialist, as Papias had been. Now, please don't misinterpret what that means, um, one must differentiate between dispensational millennialism and historical millennialism. They're not identical things. He just simply believed, he, he believed in a literal millennium. Um, he, like so many before, was strongly opposed to Martion. Like I said, from the next century, anybody who writes a book, got to write a book against Martion. And his writings are an important witness to the development of the New Testament canon because since we have so much of his writings and he's engaged in so much dispute, including with people who are trying to use scripture, you can find out how much scripture he had and what he viewed as canon scripture fairly easily. With some people, you sort of have to guess because you only have a few letters or something like that. But when, uh, you know, we have his Against Heresies. He has a, a four-volume set called Against Heresies. And it's literal. It's huge. And you write that much literature, and it's going to become fairly clear what you're working with as far as, a, uh, as your sources of authority. And uh, so uh, he wrote a refutation. Uh, re oh, I'm sorry, five. He wrote a refutation of Gnosticism in five books. That was four. Five books around 180. Called, it's called Odd Heresies, but against heresies, which is one of the most important sources of our knowledge of Gnosticism and the church's response. Well, let me expand on that. Until we found the Nag Hammadi Library in the last century, um, 
Irenaeus's work was the primary source we had. And that's not always the best source to have. Um, it, it, it's a sad reality that even amongst Christians, when you write a book against someone else's religious belief, that's, you know, that's, it's going to have biases to it. And um, sometimes some of the books we read in the early church about Gnostics, way out of line. Um, so there were questions as to exactly how accurate Irenaeus was until we found the Nag Hammadi Library. And then we now possess for the first time in uh, direct versions many of the books that he himself was refuting. And um, so we were able to get a, a greater appreciation of just how accurate he was. So he, how do I want to say, so he treated fairly their points of view? Mainly, he mainly. Misrepresent them? Not, 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 not in a, any super major way. I mean, it, it, given, given how we do things today, let's just put it this way. He was, he was better than the mainstream media is to a conservative. How's that? Is that, is that? is that something we all can understand today? Uh, yeah, okay. What? Well, <laughs> just, just, yeah, I suppose. Um, anyway, um, uh, the type of Gnosticism that he is refuting is called Valentinian Gnosticism, named after Valentinus, who taught in Rome around AD 140. So, uh, Valentinian Gnosticism, you know, now Gnosticism is really becoming identifiable and uh, and part of that's because it's now in conflict with the Orthodox Church and so that's going to uh, cause a delineation of beliefs as well very very frequently. It is because of his interaction with heresy that we find one of the most important developments in Irenaeus which will have tremendous impact in the rest of the Christian era and that is his concept of apostolic succession. Apostolic succession. Uh, if any of you saw the last dividing line I did, um, after giving a brief report on, well, relatively brief report on my trip down under, I played a, uh, a video that had just been posted, very strange video, uh, where the, the three antagonists, the three people who were being exposed as false teachers were myself, Daniel Wallace and Bart Ehrman, which is strange um, to put the three of us together uh, since both Dan and I have debated Bart, but uh, it's being put together by an ecclesiastical text group and one of the things that they were talking about was this concept of apostolic succession. And I honestly admitted when I first started watching the videos, since I, you couldn't tell till the end what they're point is, well you still can't really tell, but they quoted someone, it, gives, it sort of gives away where they're coming from. I, I thought I was reading something from, or listening to something from a Roman Catholic, because obviously the statements of Irenaeus, Tertullian, and others in regards to the concept of apostolic succession, central and primary to Rome's apologetic for her own claims that the Bishop of Rome has inherited an authority. There's been this power transfer uh, from Peter down through the apostles and 
and, and so on and so forth. And what apostolic succession means today to a Roman Catholic, you cannot simply assume because they use the term today that they're using it in the same way that Irenaeus used it. Irenaeus had no concept of the Bishop of Rome being the vicar of Christ and infallible and the head of the visible church and all the rest of it. Like I said, he told Victor, who was the Bishop of Rome, cool your jets on the issue of the uh, Court of Decimon controversy. He wasn't functioning on the idea that the Bishop of Rome headed up the church, but he was functioning on the idea that the bishops of the churches that were established by apostles had a special authority that the Gnostics didn't have. The, the Gnostics could not claim the apostles as the source of their doctrine. And the Orthodox churches claimed that they could. And this was the issue. So what is the nature of apostolic succession? What, what does that give as an advantage to one side over the other is the issue. Irenaeus, upon facing those who would interpret the scriptures in a different way than the Orthodox, claimed that the line of authority went from God to Jesus to the apostles to the bishops. So here's the line of authority. And if you're outside that line of authority, then you don't have an authority to interpret scripture anyway. Now you can understand why someone in Irenaeus's position would do this. I mean, you've got the Gnostics coming along. You don't have church history as yet. Uh, it's, it's barely been 100 years since the apostles died. There's not much in the way of, you know, you, you don't even have the first commentary on the atonement having been written. Um, the church is under persecution. And the Gnostics come along and they claim a special authority, a special spiritual authority, a special spiritual enlightenment that you don't have. That was one of the things the Gnostics did. They looked at the Orthodox and said they're spiritually dead. All they have are their, their doctrines. And we have so much more. We have the living spirit and so on and so forth. It's always an easy way to go. And so you don't even have what you're eventually going to have in the sense of a, firm, a firmly established uh, character of the New Testament canon as yet. I mean, most of it's already agreed upon. And it's, you know, the Gnostics did reject certain books, but they didn't really, well, some of the weirder ones did bring in some of their own stuff, but they, they weren't really trying to claim the apostles wrote other weird books. So the issue came down to the interpretation of the text itself. And it has been the controversial issue of the church throughout its age. If it's written, it has to be interpreted. Now, it's real easy to say, well, that's why you need to have a living voice to interpret it. One little problem with that. If you've got a living voice that interprets it, as soon as the living voice speaks, guess what you have to do? You have to interpret what's said. A clear, clear example of this is 
Vatican II was an ecum allegedly ecumenical major council, the Roman Catholic Church, that took place only, well, finished up, what, 50, about 50 years ago. 60, what was it, 64 to 67, somewhere around there. So it's about 50 years. Not that long ago. I mean, lots of people, you know, uh, Ratzinger, the former pope, was involved heavily there and stuff like that. So as far as church history is concerned, very recent memory. So you would think, if you just had an ecumenical council, that there should be really no disagreement amongst Roman Catholics concerning Roman Catholic teaching because the church just spoke. It just had an ecumenical council. You've got these you know, volumes of, of commentary and, and apostolic constitutions and all the rest of this stuff. So that should have clarified everything, right? The answer is no. All it did was vastly increase the amount of literature over which you can now have disagreements of interpretation. That's all it did. And if anything, it broadened the scope of possibilities. It didn't diminish the scope of possibilities, especially because of the nature of the council. So this issue, every single generation has to struggle with and you have struggled with it whether you know that you did or not. It's always better to know the issues you're struggling with than to not know the issues that you are struggling with anyway. Uh, it gives a lot of clarity to, to actually know, oh, that's the issue of authority to interpret scripture. Well, you and I assume a bunch of stuff about that. And the conclusions you've come to, which lead you to this room, rather than to a Roman Catholic church, or to an Eastern Orthodox church, or a Mormon church, or a, a Buddhist temple, you've, you've come to those conclusions. Whether you could identify them or not is really the issue, and that's one of the wonderful things about church history. It's also one of the things that can be a little bit uncomfortable about church history. I can't tell you how many people that I know who grew up in evangelical churches, never looked at church history, went off, maybe got really fascinated by a person in church history, started realizing there was earlier and earlier church history, and once they start reading people like Irenaeus and stuff, for the first time they are consciously faced with issues like authority to interpret scripture, apostolic succession, what's the role of tradition, all the rest of this stuff, and once they start reading, if they only read in one particular stream of things, all of a sudden they're off into some strange belief because they lose their foundations and their foundations were never really firm in the first place. And so for some people it's very troubling to go, oh, there were people in the early church that uh, claimed that instead of their sound, consistent, thorough exegesis of the text of scripture, um, they claimed that they were doing that, but that they had a special authority to come to the conclusions as to what it taught because they were ordained by someone who taught them things that came from the apostles down to this special line. And on a, on a functional level, I mean, Rome still claims this, but Roman Catholic historians are going to be honest enough to say that there's been a lot of interruptions in that line down through history. And so if that's really what's needed, then there are a lot of folks just throw their hands up in the air and say, 
Who knows? Who, who, who possibly could? And so when you encounter a, a theological liberal that didn't start out as a theological liberal, and you ask yourself the question, wonder what happened to them? For a lot of them, what happened was they start studying this stuff, and they start looking through the early church. They start going, well, that's, that's a good question. I never thought about that. That's a good question. I never thought about that either. And the conclusions they end up coming to basically are, well, it was a mess back then, and it's more of a mess now. And if they couldn't figure it out back then, there ain't no way we can figure it out now. And so let's just all shake hands and sing kumbaya and let's not worry about any of this doctrine stuff because nobody has a clue anymore. That's basically where they end up coming down. And part of the, the reason for this is that Irenaeus is dealing with a situation very early on and we can appreciate the pressures he was facing, but that doesn't mean that we have to agree with the conclusions he came to. It doesn't mean we have to agree with the methodology that he then adopted in that particular context, in that particular situation. Uh, but I also think we need to be very careful in looking at what he actually thought apostolic succession meant, and that's what we will, Lord willing, um, two weeks from now, uh, continue on with the concept of apostolic uh, succession. Yeah, I'm actually preaching in uh, Tucson um, next Lord's Day. So uh, two weeks from now, we will look at what apostolic succession meant, how that played itself out. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this privilege that is ours to look into our own history. We ask that you would give us guidance and direction that we may learn uh, both uh, what not to do and what to do to learn from those in whose lives you worked in the past. Be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.